Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, February 19, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. In this talk, Jerome Hazoni discusses his take on the positive attributes of historic and contemporary nationalist movements. We're coming together after two and a half years, let's say, after uh, the Brexit vote that Roger mentioned. Two and a half years since Donald Trump came just about out of nowhere in order to take the Republican nomination and from there the presidency. And in the meanwhile, we've gotten to see movements. They're sometimes called populist, but I'm going to refer to them as nationalist. If, you, if you're interested in the difference, I can explain why later. Nationalist movements have asserted themselves throughout Eastern Europe, Italy, Brazil, India, in Israel, in Japan. In other words, almost throughout the democratic world. Now, you could just look at this and say, well, you know, another, another political fashion, another political fad. It, they come, they go. But I want to argue that that's not the case. In fact, we're living at, an, at a very special time. This time is not an ordinary time. This time is not like other times. In the history of the world, those of you who, who enjoy reading historical books, you may have noticed that there are times that, you know, Human politics is always disrupted and disrupting. It's always volatile. But there are moments that, in which the icebergs break. The ice cap melts and breaks up, and everything rearranges itself. These things happen every 50 years or 75 years or 100 years, wherever you look in history. Every few generations, there is this kind of melting and release, and then everything freezes up again in a new way. These can be cataclysmic eruptions, but in any case, they're not politics as usual. They're politics shifting into a completely new key. They're politics shifting into a completely new paradigm. Old issues submerge and new issues arise, and they are always inevitably issues that the, the participants in, the, in a given time and place think are issues of life and death. That's the kind of period we're living in. We haven't seen a time like this since the Second World War. And I want to think to you this evening about what the meaning of this time is. Because we're not going back. I, I'm, I'm not going to make, I'm not a pundit, I'm not going to make predictions about, you know, who, much as I'm sure that it, it would be interesting for all of us, I'm not going to make predictions about who's going to win the next election. But I do know that what we're seeing is a tectonic shift, which is going to affect the politics of the next generation, regardless of who's in power, regardless of whether the British succeed with Brexit for now or fail with Brexit for now, regardless of whether the Italians turn out their populist government or keep it, regardless of whether Trump rises or falls. These things are deeper than all of these particular actors. Now, the, the concepts that I'm going to be using, I'm, I'm going to be talking about nationalism and imperialism nationalism versus imperialism. And I'm telling you already right now that some of you are going to think that the way that I'm framing or defining these words isn't fair and doesn't, or doesn't, doesn't sit well with the way that you're used to talking about things. And that's just fine. I come from a nationalist tradition. That is, 
I, I don't come from a background where people think nationalism is this terrible thing and associate it with the Nazis. And, and, and when you say nationalist, everybody's supposed to go, oh, that's horrible. I, I come from the other side. And most of you have learned whatever it is that you know about nationalism. You've learned it from people who are not themselves nationalists. And so they look at it as an, an alien, foreign, nasty thing. And that's fair enough. There's good reasons for it. But I come from the other tradition. I grew up in Israel. I grew up in a nationalist family in a country where almost all the political parties are nationalists. In Israel, we have socialist nationalists and conservative nationalists and liberal nationalists and just kooky nationalists. We have every kind of nationalist, and that's most of the people running for office in the country. And then you wonder why the country is, is, is so entertaining. And there are other countries like this. India is a country like this. Ireland is a country. There, there, there are plenty of countries in the world where the, the word nationalist means, is used the way that I'm going to use it. So, again, I'm not trying to convince you to adopt my language, but as Roger said, these are things that it takes time to think about them. I'm going to present a different way of thinking about it from within a nationalist tradition. Okay, and from within nationalist traditions... What do nationalists think they are talking about when they say, I'm a nationalist, that's a good thing to be? For nationalists, nationalism is a principled stand, a principled standpoint that suggests that the world is governed best when nations are allowed to be independent from one another and to chart their own course according to their own traditions, their own, their, their own legal, religious, and political traditions. And this term is always opposed in the nationalist political tradition. It's always opposed to imperialism. What's imperialism? Imperialism, seen from the perspective of nationalists, imperialism is the opposite. It's any kind of a theory or an ideology that says, no, 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 the world is governed best when there's a single regime of law, which as much as possible is, is, is enforced on all the nations. You know, this is, this is a, an ancient conflict. It's not, this, this goes back thousands of years. This goes, goes back to the time of the Bible. Right? God says to Abraham, uh, I'll make you a great nation. Right? Which, which proves that Trump didn't invent that slogan because God says, I'm going to make you a great nation to Abraham. And you'll notice that Abraham, he's, he's talking to God, who creator of heaven and earth, right? And he, God, creator of heaven and earth, could have said to him the same thing that all the other gods of the Middle Eastern nations say, like to the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians. God could have said, Go out and conquer the four corners of the earth because I'm going to give you the law that's the truth for all mankind. And you're going to bring peace and prosperity to the world by imposing your law on all nations and eliminating unnecessary conflict. That's what every empire of the ancient world has, has a God that tells the king, go out and do this. Hammurabi, Sancheriv, Nebuchadnezzar, they all have a God telling them that. And the God of Israel tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he gives Moses borders. He gives Abraham borders, but, but they become legally binding borders in the time of Moses. And God tells Moses, you're not going to trouble your neighbors. You're not allowed to touch them. You touch them and, and, and you get it. As far as we know, the God of Israel is the first God in the history of mankind, as far as we know to give borders to his own people and say, you don't touch the other peoples because they're my children too and they do things their own way. Now, this uh, biblical opposition to empire, right? we, we understand that the empires believe that they're going to bring prosperity and peace to all the nations of the world. We understand that, but we oppose it because we believe that nations should have their freedom. This is an idea that plays a seesaw battle with the ideal of empire all through Western history for thousands of years. Right? Uh, the, the Roman Empire is for us the classic imp imperial 
ideology. The Romans believe in conquering the whole world and bringing it under a single law in order to bring Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, to the earth. And our inheritance, our inheritance culturally, is this seesaw between Roman imperialism and Hebraic nationalism, the Hebraic love of national independence. And all the way down to today, we continue, we continue to see the different sides of this struggle. In the Middle Ages, under the, the rule of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, which sees itself as a universal church, there is an aspiration to universal Christian empire, just like there's an aspiration to universal Muslim empire, the caliphate. But in the West the Hebrew Bible continues to bubble under the surface and it, it consolidates independent national states, France and England, Poland, Czechoslovakia, not Slovakia, Czechia, sorry, uh, Hungary and others. And with the Protestant Reformation and the reading of the Hebrew Bible, nations say, we're going to be like Israel. We're going, to, we're going to be independent. Now, here in America, Americans celebrate Independence Day. All right, but Independence Day, there, was, there are no medieval Independence Days. Did I? Is that a signal? I thought it was just saying, no, you're wrong. <laughs> Independence Day. Have you ever thought about this? Independence Day is only possible if you believe in a world of independent nations. Our nation, too, is going to be independent. We're going to be free. We're going to decide things for ourselves here our way, not according to the way they do it in England, not according to the way they do it in Rome or in Germany. Here, we'll decide for ourselves. Independence Day. There are no medieval independence. There's no Roman Independence Day. The Romans are against Independence Days. They don't believe in them. We, we Jews, we like Independence Days. We have three of them. We, we celebrate independence from, from the Egyptians on Passover. We celebrate in, independence from the Greeks in Hanukkah. And we celebrate, in, we added a third one, we celebrate independence from the, from the British just because everybody else does that. <laughs> independence Days, when you celebrate an Independence Day in your nation, 4th of July, You're embracing an early modern theory which says, no, nations are going to be, the world is going to be, is governed best when there are independent nations, and my nation too is independent. We're going to seek our own destiny. And in the 400 years or so since since independence days and the idea of a world of independent nations stormed onto the scene in Europe, ratified in 1648 in the Westphalia Treaties. In, in the three, four hundred years since then, we've gotten to see amazing things. We've gotten to see that a world of independent nations allows unprecedented competition, right? All of these nations compete with one another. True, they may hate one another, They may go to war against one another. All these things are true. They're not being suppressed by an empire anymore. On the other hand, the miracles that we've seen in commerce, industry, science, political theory, everything everything that we consider to be good about the modern world is founded on a world of independent nation states. Think about the freedoms that Americans enjoy as their particular heritage built upon English freedoms and Dutch freedoms. Think about them. The idea of limited government, the idea of the the separation of powers, the idea of the free market, the idea of individual liberties like freedom of speech, freedom of religion. All of these things are the product of particular national traditions in Holland, in England, in Scotland, in America. 
There is no empire in the history of the world that has developed these kinds of theories. Everything that we consider to be good comes from this division of the world into different nations. As John Stuart Mill said, the greatness of Europe is in its diversity and its multiplicity, in the fact that each nation is different from the other nations. And the idea of empire, which certainly continues to this day, to to call out to us and say, wouldn't the world be better without borders? Wouldn't the world be better without the threat of war? Wouldn't the world be better if somebody simply imposed goodness on the world? That siren call, right, which is so attractive because it really is, it really is attractive, but what it always elides, what it always skips over is that empire means Somebody decides for you what the limits are. Somebody's traditions are going to decide for you how you're going to live. No empire in the history of the world has been able to overcome it because the whole point of empire is that somebody in some center at the United Nations or in Brussels or in Rome or somewhere else, someone maybe in Beijing, someone in some center is going to decide for all of us. Now, in our time, in our day, we all think of the 20th century in terms of the great struggle against Nazi imperialism, right? And by the way, it was the, the Allies called themselves in those days when they were fighting the Nazis, the Allies, some, some of you may remember, the Allies called themselves the United Nations, Right? Because what they promised was to liberate Europe so that nations of Europe could be independent and free again. That was what the radio broadcasts that the Americans and the British fighting against the Nazis, that's what they were promising. It was a world of independent nations. Right? So, so as late as World War II, that was still the basis. That was still the theory. And when we think about the fight against communism, the fight against, Nazi, the fight against the Nazis, and then against the communists. We think about nations, England, France, America, Poland, others, fighting against these empires that what? That just like all the other empires had, just like the Roman Empire, they, they had a vision. Hitler had a vision of the world under Nazism. The communists, the Marxists, they had a vision of a world under Marxism. Now, you have good reason to think that those particular ideologies are evil. But think about the following thing. A part of what's evil about, a part, not all, but a part of what's evil in those ideologies is that some group of people think that they have the answer for the entire planet. And the United Nations, the allies, they say no. Allow different nations to be free. I think most of the people that I know who were, who, who were involved in actually fighting the Cold War, this is what they thought they were fighting for, a world of independent nations. But a strange thing happened, a funny thing happened on the way to the end of the Cold War. After, after 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, there were voices, there were people like, Irving Kristol, Gene Kirkpatrick, who said, the war's over. We won. Time to come home. Our country needs, we need to work on ourselves. Bring the boys home. But that's not what happened. We know that's not what happened. President, no, no less a personage than, than President George H.W. Bush. I still remember the chills going down my spine when I, when I heard about the New World Order that speech. Right? For some people, maybe that was just you know, easy. If you're a nationalist, to hear the American president talk about the new world order, that's difficult. That's hard. That's hard to hear. And he said, a thousand generations, mankind, has been struggling to try to reach this moment, but now we've reached it. Now, what's the it? We're going to replace the law of the jungle with the rule of law, we're going to wrap the entire globe in a single rule of law. He was talking about 
the, the United Nations, the Security Council, would be the basis for it. Uh, presidents after that had different views. But if you want to understand, I'm not saying you have to agree. If you want to understand, what is it? What is it that Donald Trump and the Brexiteers, what is it that they're, what, what are they pulling at that's getting people so excited? Maybe you're among them. Maybe you're not. But what is it? What's the heart of it? The heart of it is looking at America from George H.W. Bush through Obama. Democrats and Republicans supported by labor and conservatives in the UK. After 1990, they, they, the, the, the conservatives kicked Margaret Thatcher out because, because she, she didn't want to... She didn't want the EU making decisions for, for the British, so they kicked her out. Democrats and Republicans, Labour and Conservatives, and all the major parties across Europe united in this vision of the new world order that there's going... I mean, I'm, I understand that these are very different parties, and, and they had lots of things to argue about. I'm not pretending they all agreed. They certainly didn't agree. But from the perspective of a nationalist, they all agreed on the fundamental thing, that the world was going to be governed best under a single rule of law that somebody was going to come up with. And the time that we're living in is a time of rebellion against this, against a thing that to nationalists looks like an empire. And you can say, oh, you know, how, how how can you how can you speak that way? I mean, empires are about conquests, but you see, nationalists look at the kind of. Please excuse me. I mean, this is just the way I understand it. The kind of um, overreach, intellectual, moral, and military overreach, that is required. For somebody to sit in Washington and say, I know how Iraq should be governed. I know how, how Yugoslavia should be governed. And Libya and Afghanistan and Somalia and, and anybody else who wants to cause trouble. I know how they should all be governed. I know how to bring peace. I know how to bring pr prosperity. All you got to do is take American values or European values. I mean, there's these different versions of this, but they're always enlightenment values, right? They're always some kind of enlightenment philosophy. And history has a direction. Republican and Democrat pre Democratic presidents told us this. There's a direction to history. And some people are on the right side and some people on the wrong side. And I know. I'm so smart. I know. I know who's on the right side of history. I know who's on the wrong side of history. So when, when you're not on board, okay, and it turns out that there are many, many millions of people who aren't on board, you look at, the Americans or the Europeans who are saying this, who are, who are in, embarking on these wars to conquer other nations and to, to, to teach them by force how to be like Americans or Europeans, you, you know what? They, people in the Middle East, you wonder why, why don't they want America in the Middle East? But Iraqis look at America. Shiites and Sunnis, look at, they look at America and they say, you know, America is a very powerful and a very wealthy country. But you really think that, that America solved all the problems? America has, you know, they, they, they read, they argue, they're intelligent people. They, you know, I don't necessarily uh, approve of their politics and maybe not even of their religion often, but, but they read. And they look at America and they say America has 40% of children being born outside of marriage. Uh, Americans, if they want to stay married, they can't. Even, even if they want to, they end up divorced. Okay, they, 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 They've eliminated religion from their schools. Now, I know that Americans love that. But people in Iraq 
look at this and they say, you're trying to teach us how to live. You can't even, you don't even know how to run your own country and you're going to run mine. And they're willing to fight and die to prevent America from running their country. Now, there's obviously such a thing as real evil. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm no relativist. I'm not here to tell you that there isn't real evil. There is. There's real evil in the world. And there are times when there's no choice at all. There's no choice at all. And Americans and other decent people have to pick up weapons and they, they have to do what they have to do. And, and I'm thankful for that. And many, many other nations in the world are thankful for that. But at the same time, over the last generation, America has reached a, a place where I don't think it should want to be, a place of not being willing to allow that other nations can have different ways of living, different ways of life, and that those ways of living and those ways of life, even though Americans may look at it and say, oh, you know, th that doesn't look good to me, and sometimes you're right, Despite that, still, there's a place on God's earth for different kinds of traditions and different kinds of nations because Americans and Europeans haven't got the whole thing worked out. There's an awful lot of things about America and Europe that just aren't, let's put it this way, they just aren't ready to be imposed by force on the world. Now, today... Um, we're looking at, as I say, we're looking at nationalist rebellions against this liberal internationalist order, which from the perspective of the nationalists looks like liberal imperialism, the desire to, to impose a certain order on the world. And this is not intended to be an endorsement Okay, uh, this is this is not to say that that uh, that if you're a nationalist, you have to vote for Trump or you have to vote for Salvini or 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 or, or Boris Johnson. Because you know, human beings are human beings and they have their failings and there's there's always things to criticize and maybe big things to criticize. But it's worth keeping your eye on the big ideas which are shaping this moment because in in a very to a very significant degree these political actors are i mean they're not the cause they're the effect i mean i'm not saying that that the president of the united states isn't a powerful man and obviously every day he does things and is a cause of all sorts of things some of them good and some of them bad but if donald trump were uh, to decide that he he doesn't want to be president president anymore tomorrow See, now I'm just pandering to the crowd. <laughs> if that were to happen, the big picture that we're talking about wouldn't change. It wouldn't change a bit. Because the, the tens of millions of people who've decided that they don't want to be ruled, they don't want to be delegating their self-determination, their right to, 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 to live free according to the, their own culture and their own traditions. They don't want to be living... You know, the, the, the Italians that, that are, don't want Germans and Belgians deciding who their finance minister is going to be or what the size of their budget is going to be or whether they devalue their currency. Those, those Italians are still going to be really angry and really upset about the dismantling of their independent country, whether Donald Trump is president or not. And the same thing is true in the United States. Americans chose Donald Trump because they were looking for something. And that something is a, uh, is a national cohesion. Right, you can laugh because you can say, well, Donald Trump's no good at de delivering national co cohesion. That may be. But the people who voted for him they were saying, this country is already so divided. 
People, the people in Washington don't, they, they can't, they can't hear my cry no matter how, no, no matter what it is that's happening to me. They can't hear my cry. They keep going in their own liberal internationalist way. And if Donald Trump is gone, those people will still be there. And somebody else may be better, may be worse. Somebody else will come. And this isn't, this isn't going to be resolved. And it's, it's not going to be resolved until there's some kind of decisive resolution of the question. Is America a nation? Does it want to stay a nation like it was in its founding? Does it have a way of staying a nation? Of uniting its people. I'm not saying everybody should agree about everything, but, but uniting about things like, you know, should we have borders? Should we delegate the authority of our government to foreign bodies? Those are very, very basic things. And it's got to be decided one way or another, and it's going to take many, many years to get a consensus. That's the issue of our generation. In my book, The Virtue of Nationalism, I... I propose that for all the obvious failings of a world of independent nations, a world of independent nations is, in fact, a world of freedom, freedom of nations to set their course. That's not always that's not always going to lead to individual liberties. But the only place on Earth where individual liberties flourish is in a cohesive Nation that's independent. That's it. That's historically all we know about how to get to individual liberties is through the cohesion of a people that's willing to allow one another. You, yes, you do have the right to say that even though I don't agree. Yes, you do have the right to own that even though I, I would prefer that you don't. All right, so this is, this is the issue of our time. And whichever side that you're on, it's worth looking at the other side because there are good arguments on both sides. And I'm grateful that you gave me the time to tell you a little bit about the nationalist side this evening. Thank you. Okay, well, I, I see that I said that Maybe later I would distinguish nationalism from populism, and um, somebody immediately jumped to ask me to do that. Um, so uh, th this this card asks nationalism, patriotism, and populism. So let's start with nationalism and populism. Um, as far as I understand it, the populists are making a class argument, an argument about class. They're saying the broad public is smarter and understands better the needs of our nation than the elites. Okay, that's why populism, as opposed to elitism. Populism is the opposite of elitism. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to that today um, because I, you know, having, having gotten various fancy degrees and spent my life with the, uh, the elites, I, 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 I think that we elites are think way too much of what we think we know. And so today I have some sympathy with the populists, but I'm no populist because I don't think there's anything inherently smarter about the broad public than about the elites. Sometimes the broad public is real dumb. Sometimes the elites are real dumb. And the the aim of a nationalist is always to try to unite the broad public and the elites around some basic things so that there's enough cohesion to be able to solve major problems internally and fight enemies externally when you need to. Right? So a nationalist is not a populist. It may be that today the nationalists are sympathetic to the, to the populists, but it's not the same thing. Populism is, is some kind of a class, a class conflict, which I don't really have that much sympathy for in general. Um, patriotism, patriotism and nationalism, you know, the, the, these are, um, I, I, I think whenever you start doing definitional, definitional terms, especially when academics are involved, the more academics are involved, the more hair splitting there is. And every time you use a word, then you'll get, you know, various professors who are experts in that discipline to say that you, you use the word incorrectly. Um, 
and the distinction between nationalism and populism, I, I think, is is one of those uh, patriotism is is one of those distinctions. I, I actually don't really think that there's very much difference at all. The one the one useful difference is that nationalism is traditionally a name for a political theory, uh, the theory of a world order based on independent nations. That's that's called nationalism. Patriotism is not a political theory. Patriotism refers to the feelings that people have when they, you know, they want to fight for the independence of their own nation. But those things are very similar to one another. Okay. Do you think Britain remaining in the EU would be inherently anti-nationalist if it's in their best economic interest to remain? Um, yes, uh, because the EU is not simply an economic body. If you have a cohesive nation, when I say cohesive, this is another John Stuart Mill term. It's, it's referring to the characteristic of, of, uh, of a people that are mutually loyal to one another. I'm not saying that every single individual is loyal to every other one. But in general, a cohesive nation is one where if, if the nation is attacked, you can count on just about everybody to go to war and to be willing to sacrifice heavily for their neighbors, you know, regardless of if their neighbor has different political or religious views or a different race or whatever, the, the, you can tell objectively that a nation exists by the mutual loyalty of the people for one another. And if you want to know, you know, how is, is America healthy today? look to whether the people are mutually loyal to one another. And you can feel that, that it's disintegrating. And that's the way that you know that there was a nation, there still is a nation, an American nation, but that it's on the ropes because of that cohesion, which is, is fraying. Okay, so the question of which economic policy should Britain have? Well, the first question is, is there a Britain? If there's a Britain that has, you know, the mother of all parliaments. I love that expression. They, that's what they call it. The mother of all parliaments, but it's true. If they have the common law, they have an established church, they have the royal family, they have their traditions, their freedoms, they have their way of doing things, and, and, and they're mutually loyal to one another. If they decide that they want to have a certain kind of an economic relationship with, with Germany or with France, Great. If they decide that they want to undo that, also great. But if they decide that their parliament is no longer responsible for what takes place in England, right, in, in, in the UK, parliament is not sovereign anymore. The, 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 the queen is not sovereign anymore. They, they're, in effect, dissolving their country. They're handing their capacity to make laws and to make decisions to the bureaucrats in Brussels. So that's anti-nationalist. That's giving up on Britain. That's not an economic question. That's a question of, first of all, of self-perception and from, of, of identity. Are, are, are we independent and of law? Do we have the right as independent people to decide for ourselves what economic policy is? If they decide they don't have the right anymore, that's anti-nationalist, then they're joining the, the European empire. Okay, I don't understand that one so well. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm not that smart, right? I can't understand all of them. Um, is there a role for in international organizations uh, like like NATO, the UN, and then several others are, are, are named, which set down some rules for national behavior? Look, a anybody can set down some rules for national for, for 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 the behavior of nations. Anybody can do it. You can do it in treaties. They can be bilateral. They can be multilateral. There, there's customary law of nations, which is, is just the way nations get along, even if there's no legislative body organization. The, there are practices that, that, that over centuries become sort of codified and people write them down. There's all sorts of good reasons to have, to have rules. But if the rules aren't backed by force, 
then they're completely meaningless. I mean, the, the, the reason that you can have civilization inside a national state, inside an independent nation state, is because a group of people are loyal to one another and they're willing to obey the laws that a legislature or a king or whoever their representative or their rulers are. Because they're willing to obey, right? they're not forced all the time to serve, to, pay, to serve in the army, to pay their taxes, to obey the laws. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, people in America obey the laws, not because somebody's forcing them, but because they're loyal to their country and they, 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 they just think it's the right thing to do. So some people are criminals, but overwhelmingly, people just serve the country and obey the laws because of their loyalty to it. There is no such thing internationally. There is no loyalty of people to to the inter, to the Geneva Conventions and all the rules that come out of the United. There there is no such thing. It's a fantasy to think that there is such a thing. I also in my book I argue that it's also fantasy to think that there could be such a thing. But that's already extra credit. Right now, there's endless international law, and no one is loyal to it. Right. Nobody. No. I mean, you know, maybe maybe in in the elites of the, the you know, there are people who feel loyal to it in some places. But in general, there are no countries where people feel loyal loyalty. I'm going to, you know, I, I, I'm going to pay taxes to the U.N. You don't hear anybody saying, let's do that. Nobody. Nobody has that. The only way that that international law can become law instead of just like you know, suggestions or morals. The only way it can become law is if some, and Kant, Kant wrote about this 200 years ago, if some body is, has enough power to be able to defeat any nation or coalition of nations that resists the law. That's the only way that you can have international law. And this is exactly the point is that many people in our elites think that would be a great thing. Let's create bodies, or a body, body or bodies, that have sufficient power to be able to impose whatever you know the bureaucrats think is right. And I think the opposite. I think that's the scariest thing in the world. All right, so let's say that they're all geniuses and they're brilliant for 10 years or 20, which is, it's just ridiculous. If you look at the, the UN or the EU, I mean, it's just absurd. But just for the sake of argument, let's assume they're geniuses and they get everything right for 10 or 20 years. What about 30, 40, 50 years from now? You've created a power that's capable of defeating all nations on earth. And how long before that becomes a totalitarian power? I mean, th that, that question, for some people, it's completely obvious. Power corrupts. You give people that much power, they will become corrupt, and they will be squashing all sorts of decent people all over the world very soon. That, I, that, that's, that's my understanding. That's my intuition. Maybe, maybe you, you see it otherwise. But so the answer is, look, these institutions, of course, if all they're doing is coordinating, like sovereign countries, they get together, let's say, the European countries want to defend against Russia. So they get together and they say, let, let, let's, let's have a, a, uh, a unified command. I know, let's call it NATO, and it will defend us against, against Russia. Okay, fine, that's a, that's a completely laudable aim. That's not the same aim as you don't get to have currency anymore. Because uh, uh, bankers in Germany are going to decide for you when to devalue. You you don't you don't get to make your own laws anymore because because the in in Belgium there are experts who will make the laws for you. They'll tell you how big your apples have to be. That's not the same thing as independent countries coordinating to, for for the laudable goal of defending themselves as against Russia. It's something completely different. Okay, historically nationalist thinking has had the ability to create an us and them dichotomy. How can we ensure nationally, nationalism remains a positive unifying force? Look, it, this is, I, 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 I go into detail in, on this in, in, in my book. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to do justice to the argument here in, in a minute or two, but um, us and them is hardcore what it means to be a human being. 
right? You, you raise a family, right? Most people here have, have raised families or were raised in families. That creates an us and them. That creates, there's a, a sharp divide between you and your kids and the neighbors and their kids, right? Often you can keep it really peaceful and really nice. Sometimes it gets really nasty, right? And you don't find that your children are spying for the neighbors, you know, sending them little secret messages because they're, they're traitors against you for your neighbors. There's a, there is a fundamental loyalty within the family. I'm not saying that it's perfect, but it, in general, human families work this way, is that husbands fight with their wives, never the other way around, and 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 children fight with one another and the fighting gets terrible and it's nasty the moment that there's an attack a pressure an adversity from the outside everybody rallies round everybody rallies round the fighting stops that's that's fundamental human nature the us and them when when groups of families ally in 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 clans groups of clans in tribes groups of tribes in nations Families of nations ally with one another against empires or other families of nations. This is hardcore what it is to be a human being. There is no known drug or medical procedure that can alleviate our feeling, us and them. So the question before us is not, you know, how do we get rid of us and them? Because we can't uh, unless we want to stop being human. The, the question is, given that, that we're capable of, of doing horrible things when we go to war against them, us, when we go to war against them, we're capable of doing horrible things. But it's also true that, that everything beautiful that we're capable of doing comes from, from this, this us. I mean, the, the altruism that people are always you know, say, saying, give, you know, give freely of, of charity and respect and tolerate your neighbors and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all of these things, they're always talking about what becomes possible in a broad community that feels a strong us. You take away the us and take away the them and all of these beautiful moral dreams then, then, then they, 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 they disappear. The fuel for the morality is the us-ness and the great things that we can achieve when we pull together. You know, I'm just going to keep going all night till somebody tells me that. All right. Uh, all right. I mean, I wasn't asking to stop. I, was, I just wanted you to know I can't see anything up here and, except these cards, and they're beautiful. Um, all right, this is a great question. Does nationalism always go hand in hand with conservatism, or can progressives also claim nationalism for themselves? Okay, I, this is I, I'm going to say two different things, which are which slightly contradict one another, but but they're both true, and you're going to have to decide which one's better or how to fit them together. Um, First of all, uh, yes, you can be a progressive nationalist. I, I mean, uh, Bill Clinton is one of the people saying nationalism all the time now. I don't know if he counts for anything, but Bernie Sanders is is a borders guy. He believes in borders. I mean, maybe he's, you know, he's, I, I don't know if the Democratic Party is, is going to go in that direction anymore, but I, I have no idea. But But Sanders represents an old view of what socialism is, you know, which is the same kind of socialism that, that is familiar from the, the early years of, of Israel and lots of other countries. It's a socialism that says, that says there's a we, and this we, our nation, we have to go to extraordinary lengths to take care of one another. Okay, we have to do much, much more to take care of one another. And the, the wealthy should be willing to do that because there's a we, a clear we, right? That's that's the old socialism, and it, it it can only work if there's a strong we. If there's not a strong we, then you can't get the wealthy to want to participate in that. You know what? Libertarianism people, libertarians, the, they think that they're the opposite. They're not the opposite. Libertarians are the same thing. It's kind of the flip side, but it, it's the same exact thing. 
how can you get people to even dream of living in an Ayn Rand society where there's going to be, you know, unbelievable differences in in wealth and power and prestige? And, and how, how can you get people to think it's only possible where there's a strong we for people to say, yeah, you know, he 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 or she there is is ten thousand times wealthier than I'm, but I'm fine with that. That's the way we do things here. It can only happen where there's a strong we. So you can have any kind, you know, any any one of these ideologies can be uh, fused with nationalism, with the belief in an independent national state. A nation is going to govern itself and make its own decisions. But there is a sense, having said that, there is a sense, and I keep I keep telling my progressive nationalist friends this, and sometimes they even say that I'm I might be right. Sometimes um, today, the nation you have to be some kind of conservative to believe in nations anymore, because the idea of the independent nation is is like the idea of the family it's something you know that that's been under art, artillery barrage for for at least three generations and it's on the ropes it's in, it's in it's in deep trouble there are many people who just don't believe that there should be nations that there should be borders that there should be national independence that the, the, lots of people just don't don't believe in this anymore especially the people educating your kids in universities and no a lot of them I, it's true. I can point to exceptions, but but in in general, it, it, it's really a serious problem. So, so um, the idea of the independent nation, in a lot of ways, it's it's like, you know, the old idea of um, of the you know of uh, there's a difference between man and woman, or the old idea of family, or the old idea of God, or the old idea. You know, you can, you can name all of these things that. Um, in FDR's America, we're still, you know, just everybody just assumed that that was the way things were. But today, they're they're all debatable. They're they're all being debated, and it's not clear how things are going to end. And so, in general, what's happening is that um, it's that it's the conservative parties that are most willing to wake up and consider the importance of national independence, which is. You know, been for centuries a tradition in a place like America or or or, or in Britain, and a little bit less so among pro- progressives who are who are who are deeper in the rebellion against all the traditional ideas. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History or visit us at nyhistory.org.